Chapter forty one, part two of Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty one, part two. Reclus was a learned anthropologist, and read to our society in London a paper of great value on the right of circumcision. Elie Reclus took me one evening to a room in Bloomsbury, where the communards who had escaped were wont to gather. A poor place, and they were poor people, but I was impressed by their intelligent and benevolent countenances. Several told me of the means by which they had escaped— one very striking individual had been saved by two women, who had no interest whatever in the agitation, but saw him trying to evade pursuit along their small street not far from the Port Saint-Denis. They were respectable young women who had closed the windows and doors of their shop below, and were looking out of an upper window. They managed to arrest his attention, and he was admitted at their door just in time, for the pursuing gendarme had appeared in the street which he had been seen to enter. The women concealed him under their mattress. Soon after there was a knocking at their door, which they opened with a string from their bedroom. There were one or two other families in the building. When the gendarme came to the door of these maiden sisters, they had undressed, and opening the door just enough to be partly seen, they said, "'What is it? You can't come in here. We are half-naked.' The gendarme knew that they were respectable people, and departed. He stayed until late at night, during which time the sisters had gone off to an address he gave, and secured him a passport to England. They made up some disguise, and he left at midnight, made his way to the coast, and reached England in safety. Elie Reclus was interested in my researches on demonology, and mentioned to me that one of the communards generals, the Sicilia, was a learned scholar in eastern tongues, and might be of service to me. He was in London and wanted employment. De Cecilia was indeed a useful assistant. I have received from his widow, on whom I called in Paris in 1900, an account of his life and his escapes, and hope to publish it some day. But I could never comprehend how that learned man, delicate and refined, feminine as his name, could have been a general of any kind, or been mixed up in any violence. From the time I reached London after my adventures during the Franco-German War, my burden against war was repeatedly uttered. My narratives and descriptions were listened to by large audiences, reported in the papers, and generally welcomed. But at length one discourse brought some censures upon me. This was on the dead emperor. As a journalist I attended the funeral of Napoleon III at Chislehurst. January 1873, but it was with reluctance that I incurred such risk of being mentioned by some reporter as paying homage to Napoleon III. It was a memorable scene. There, in an old English mansion, lay in state, surrounded by candles, covered with lilies, honoured by the Queen's family, the man whose perjured, blood-stained throne had appeared to me in youth a seat of the real Satan. I had tracked his career of treasons and massacres and witnessed the slaughter of thousands on the altar of his ambition. 
as he lay there dead, while the victims of his oppression breathed freer. I could now look upon him with a certain compassion, as himself a victim. He was born under a star that was not in the sky, but in his own deluded consciousness. His superstition had deprived him of free agency. He was chained to his guilty fantasy, and had to fulfill the measure of its iniquity. Let it go at that. Yet it could not be left to go at that. He had bought the favor of England with the hush-money of a commercial treaty, and now the balance was being paid at his grave out of the treasury of English honor. The press was largely filled with effusive eulogies, which all had one keynote. Our customer is the immediate jewel of our soul. The terrible crimes were accorded silent condemnation, the desolations of France forgotten and out of the tomb was raised a soul to march on again amid the enthusiasm of youth, to wield again the sceptre of tyranny. For this was the evident aim. There was no real mourning for the emperor. The abjectness at Sedan alone must render him an impossible emperor. Hardly was he in his tomb before Britannia was putting on all her smiles for his son. That nothing but good must be said of the dead is an axiom totally inapplicable to those who do not remain dead, but are raised out of their tombs to be exemplars, standards. With such preface I told my congregation, January 11, 1873, the plain history of the dead man. No newspaper resented my statement, but I received angry letters. In the summer of 1873 I was introduced to Émile Girardin and to Prince Napoleon, and had some conversation with them. The great editor was very interesting as a genuine organism of past epochs, looking forward to their return under new names. To Prince Napoleon I carried a note from Charles Bradlaugh, for whom he expressed friendship and sympathy. The prince was a fine-looking and able man, and spoke good English, but I did not trust his Bradlaughism. I also on this visit met Victor Hugo, of whom something is said on a farther page. From Paris I went to wander over my old tracks as a war correspondent. In Gores I stopped at a door where I had been kindly received by a French family. The house was then filled with wounded Germans, and Madame and her young daughter, refined ladies, were sleeplessly nursing the sufferers. Madame was now an invalid. Her husband took me to her room where she lay in bed. She told me that of the many wounded men brought to their house, twenty-six had remained for six months. Though up to the battle of Gravelotte, she had never known any illness. She had not since known a day of health. This lady, whom I remember as beautiful, was now pale and her hair touched with grey. Her kindly eyes filled with tears as she recurred to the tragical events that had desolated her happy life and home. She was a picture of France. I revisited the fields and groves where I had witnessed the terrible strife. The battlefields were golden with ripe corn, and only peaceful reapers were seen there where the dreadful scythe of death had mowed down men. The fields exhibited no red spots but the poppies, and in the distance even the groups of white crosses were like parterres of flowers. In the foreground were the cheerful gardens with their burning bushes. Roses and fuchsias so large and deep-hued that it may have been such that caused Nizami to say, Every flower in the garden of the earth is the heart's blood of a man. 
Nature was hiding her scars with flour and grain, as if to persuade her human children to forget theirs. The only thing missed from the cheerful scene was the songs of the birds. Three years before, even in the intervals of the cannon, the air was filled with their music. In José Réal I observed on several houses boughs and bushes, and was told that this village had been famous in times past for its pigeons, constituting its special merchandise. But since the war few of the birds had returned, and the inhabitants had hung out the boughs to lure them back. But the efflorescence of the war on the French stage, and on the walls of the Paris Salon, was very different from that of the flowers on the battlefields, and for some years reminded me of the departed songsters. Pictures of war, bloodshed, cruelty had replaced the scenes of happy peasant life, and the dreams of repose. French literature was indeed stimulated, but a tone of despair began to pervade it. The mixture of self-contempt at having been led by intriguers like Napoleon III to slaughter and disgrace, the bitterness of inglorious sacrifices, the irremediable bereavements felt throughout France, were powerfully expressed in a volume of poems by Louise Ackerman. One of her poems impressed me deeply, Les Malheureux. The last day has come, the trumpet has sounded. A great angel descends, uncovers all the graves of the dead, and bids them come forth for everlasting life. A few eagerly come forth, but the larger number refuse. To the divine command they answer that they have had enough of life in his creation. They have passed through thorns and over flinty paths, from agony to agony. To such an existence he called them. They suffered it, and now they will forgive him only if he will let them rest, and forget that they have lived. A pleasanter visit than that to the battlefields was made to another region of France with my dear friend Henry Bacon, an American whose ancestors fought at Lexington, who had himself fought for the Union, and who was leading the life of a happy artist and littérateur in Paris. Not long after my settlement in London, the chief American artist there, G. H. Boughton, R.A., introduced me to Huntington, Paris correspondent to the Tribune, and collector of Franklinianna. He introduced me to Henry Bacon, whom he had inspired enough to paint Franklin at home. At that time Bacon was living in the Rue Newton, I think, and had a grand studio. It is, however, chiefly in his apartment in the Faubourg Saint-Honoré that I saw most of himself, and his first wife. Bacon was charming company, and in every sense artistic. Full of good sense and tact as well as humor, and very hospitable, he and his first wife, still more his present wife, were my helpful friends during all my life in Europe. He united literary with pictorial art. He not only was best company, but his dainty imagination was expressed in some sketches he wrote and graciously loaned me which remain graven in my memory. Many years ago I saw in his room a wonderful picture of a young man, in evening dress, dining alone in his fine room, standing, bending forward and touching his glass against an empty glass across the table. It was a touching and weird picture. Some years later I asked him to show me this picture again, but he had sold it. A man had come there, an aeronaut, 
and had given a large price for the picture. This man ascended in a balloon, and shot himself. In 1893 the same idea was represented in a powerful cartoon by Gibson, which appeared in the Christmas number of Life, accompanying a story by the accomplished editor J. A. Mitchell. The story, entitled A Bachelor's Supper, is extremely poetical, and no doubt Gibson's picture was inspired by it. The bachelor is much older than the man in Bacon's picture, and his fine nature is reflected in the faces of the seven ladies loved and lost who smile upon him. Boughton had been a pupil of Frère, and had loaned me some of the engravings used in my article in Harper's Magazine on Edouard Frère and Sympathetic Art in France. Some years later I desired to see Frère, and to buy a picture straight from his easel. Henry Bacon, also a pupil of Frère, cheerfully accompanied me to Ecouen. Frère had received my magazine article from Boughton, and welcomed me cordially. He called his wife, who was delighted to see Bacon again, and gave us a repast. Frère was a small man with bright black penetrating eyes. He and Bacon talked over the time when the Germans occupied Ecouen. Soldiers were quartered in other large mansions, but the German commander had called on Frère, and told him that he should not be disturbed. Frère had finished a number of pictures, but a contract with Gambard prevented his privately selling one. But, he said, it does not forbid my giving one, and although these new ones are already ordered, I have a little sketch here which I pray you to accept as a souvenir. He then brought out a drawing of a girl feeding rabbits, also a pen-and-ink sketch of a village school interior, and at the bottom of both wrote his presentation. His friend and pupil von Becker came in, and we all visited his atelier to see a picture just completed of an humble interior in Finland, von Becker's country, a child taking her first steps in dancing, since widely known engravings. Von Becker was a noble gentleman. He afterwards held some high office in Finland, and I believe painted a little. When Bacon and I were setting out for Paris, a package was handed to me through the car window. It proved to be a gift to me from von Becker, a life study of the favorite Ecouin model, a beauty of eighteen years. My enrichment was increased in Paris, where Bacon gave me a charming little sketch of a scene in Ecouin, a German soldier plodding along with hands full of ducks and geese, and two children a little boy shrinking behind the skirt of his sister. It is a beautiful picture, and now in my son's house. The cruelty with which the French government pursued the artist Courbet, on the accusation of having led the riotous commune to pull down the Vendôme column in Paris, excited a great deal of sympathy for him. For myself I regarded the intensity of feeling among the new Republican rulers about that column, as measuring the depth to which Napoleon worship was rooted in France. Both of the emperors bearing that name had by blunders brought their country bleeding and desolate under the feet of conquerors, and ended their meteoric careers in miserable exile. If ever there was a pardonable thing for the victims of Napoleonism to do, it was to pull down that memorial of their shame, and of the baser elements in France. Courbet, chosen minister of fine arts by the Commune, had managed to save the collections of the Luxembourg and of Monsieur Thiers from the mob, but made no effort to save the Vendôme column. 
Among those who shared my feelings about Napoleonism was my dear friend Judge Hodley, afterwards Governor of Ohio. Towards the close of 1872 he requested me to order a picture from Courbet. In answer to my letter came the following, in French. Ornon, Département de Double, 11 February 1873. My dear sir, I have received your letter, and the order you have given me in it for your friend in Cincinnati with the greatest satisfaction. But imagine, then, in what an exceptional situation I find myself. I am ill and have been so all winter. You will understand it easily when you know of the shocks and troubles I have had to undergo. Beside other unheard-of things, here is the French chamber trying to make me raise again the Vendôme column, else they will seize all my property, my studio, and perhaps my person. How could you, pray, expect me to paint a picture in such a situation? We must hope that all this will pass. It is an ineffable insanity, all the more that I have once already undergone all the condemnations which have been carried into effect. After all this ends— or when I am free, so soon as I can, I will hasten to execute the kind order you have given me for your friend. Be sure I do not forget you, and that I hope to be satisfactory to your friend so kindly intentioned toward me, as well as toward yourself, who have been so kind in this matter. Please be patient, and take into consideration my present exceptional situation. Accept, I beg of you, the expression of my most diligent sentiments, with my compliments to yourself and your friend. Gustave Courbet. When Courbet was in exile at Vevey, I travelled from London, midwinter, to select a picture for Judge Hodley. His atelier was near the famous Chillon, and he alluded to the notable prisoner speaking of his own banishment. This he felt keenly. The few pictures he had completed were neighbouring mountain and lake scenes, powerful but with a sombre tone. No human figure was in any of them and when I expressed preference for a picture with some figure, he said, I cannot insert a figure in the presence of these grand mountains. It would belittle them. And indeed, since I have left Ornon, I have had no heart to paint human figures. The look of this portly Corbet was that of an overgrown boy, very blonde, quick in movements, full of emotion, too. He was not eager about the price of the picture selected, but hardly wished it to be full. He said nothing about the Vendôme column. Looking back from the opening twentieth century on the past, with the eyes of a disillusioned reformer, it appears to me that the nineteenth century reached its apotheosis in the centenary of Voltaire, at Paris, May 30, 1878. That day the playing fountains, the expanding blossoms, the cloudless sky— combined with festivals of the splendid exposition, to overlay the scars of war, put to shame tinsel of the dead empire, and welcomed back the banished brains of France. The festival opened in the circus at the Chateau d'Eau. In the vast building six thousand people assembled. In the centre was a flower-wreathed chariot, surmounted by symbolical statues of France and liberty. Winged genie had wreaths above the head of a veiled figure, Music and banners greeted the municipal council, bearing aloft the arms of Paris, and the motto, Fluctuat non mergiter. Around the veiled and laureled figure shone the names of the fathers of printing, and of Voltaire's great contemporaries. 
the eloquent senator laurent pichat gave his brief oration the veil vanished and there was voltaire holding his pen the enthusiasm of the six thousand was overwhelming vive voltaire vive la république began the joyous vivas for everybody and everything brave free human ended only when hubin's cantata to the words by paul evenal broke out from the choir having to leave in order to hear the oration of victor hugo my wife and i could only get out through vaults led by attendants with candles she was unequal to another function and i went alone to the théâtre de la gaieté the standing crowd was so great that i could not reach my appointed seat near the front but my friend howard paul the actor saw me and having to leave managed to get me into his seat a more brilliant auditory never gathered eloquent as was the orators more impressive was it to see the statesmen and authors of france assembled in homage around the flower-wreathed bust of voltaire the original bust by houdon when victor hugo arose and his head haloed with snowy hair was seen just in front of the bust a cry of joy broke from every heart it was not a cheer not a bravo not a viva simply a cry of joy it began with a long breathed out satisfaction ah easily interpreted as here is our man with what delight the plaudits followed how eyes glistened and hands waved in the air cannot be described the assembly beheld in victor hugo the avatar of voltaire the poet and the bust were apotheosized together when he spoke of voltaire's smile which he traced to the very stars the thin lips of the statue seemed to move and the penetrating eyes of the stone beam on the assembly the listeners became as a thousand stringed harp which the master swept with aeolian accents of a voice pure and flexible capable of every range when he spoke of the one weapon which voltaire wielded a weapon soft as the zephyr strong as the storm a pen i could only think of the voice to which we were listening his gestures were as unique as they were graceful when he had recited the two terrible examples of priestly tyranny and said then o voltaire thou didst utter a cry his hand with outstretched finger pointed straight before him and for the moment one could hardly help turning to see if voltaire were not in the dress circle every movement was realistic and yet even his emphatic gestures were surpassed by the wonderful changes of color that played about the face of this wonderful man the denunciation of war the arraignment of it and it seemed to stand before him personified as some ghoul preying upon humanity was matchless and when he had spoken those glorious sentences had pictured all the happy and peaceful toilers and enjoyers of the world compulsorily gathered to that dread international exposition which is called the battlefield there was but one thing which would not have been an anticlimax and that one came tears the orator's voice was choked with an emotion which spread through the house and when he next essayed to speak and for an instant faltered the whole assembly half rising burst out with acclamations the banquet in the evening at the grand orient of france 
was radiant with prevailing joy, the happiness of the hundreds of radicals at being free to utter their whole mind. They touched glasses, they were filled with laughter, they rose up and sang the Marseillaise again and again, repeating the verses as if they could never have enough of it. Peace was not only the cry of Victor Hugo. On that very stage where he so impressively denounced war, there was a grand spectacle of the Age of Gold and the Golden City. In it the première danseuse came forward waving an olive branch. Then all the flags of the world blossomed out, waved by the Coeur de Ballet, except that of Germany. Then the première danseuse went back a little, and pirouetted forward, waving in front of all the German flag. The reception given it by the spectators was cordial enough to be favorably felt on the bourse. No more Franco-German war. At the banquet I was called on for a speech. I could fairly understand a speech in French, but could not make one. So Dr. Chapman, editor of the Westminster Review, translated my address. I was introduced and welcomed as an anti-slavery American and a free-thinking lecturer in London. The chairman, whose name I forget, privately explaining to me that he omitted any allusion to my chapel because the word chapel had in French minds a theological connotation that would convey a false impression. On the following day I visited Victor Hugo. When I first came to Europe I had brought him a gift from George L. Stearns, a life-size marble bust of John Brown. We did not converse, however, about John Brown, for he had said in his oration, Voltaire is in the nineteenth century, and Voltaire wielded his pen as his only weapon. John Brown belonged to the century of Joshua and Gideon, or so it appeared then, for alas it looks as if his violence may march on in the twentieth century, while his love of freedom is left in the nineteenth. In the above account of Victor Hugo's oration, I adhere pretty closely to my notes made at the time under an enthusiasm inspired not only by the orator, but by the European situation amid which he spoke. England had been for some months on the verge of a war with Russia, and only five weeks before the Voltaire centenary Gladstone had been mobbed, and he and his wife dragged from their house into the street because of opposition. On Sunday, March 31, the danger had appeared so imminent that I laid aside my advertised subject and preached on the peril of war. This discourse was widely circulated in pamphlet form, and I received from Mr. Gladstone the following dated 73 Harley Street, April 13, 1878, a few days before his house was mobbed. I thank you for your kindness in sending me your able and outspoken discourse on the peril of war. I have read it with great satisfaction. We are, I fear, widely separated on matters which I regard as of deep moment to the welfare of mankind. I am on this account not the less but the more thankful to find that we are also in accord upon the paramount and essential principles of justice, mercy, and truth, in their application to the great question of the East. This pleasurable sentiment does not relieve the pain with which I observe that many of those who are good, and super-good, are entirely at issue with us, and in my view, as also probably in yours, have altogether lost the clue which should have guided them to a right decision. I remain, sir, your very faithful servant, W. E. Gladstone. 
The war-cloud had not indeed disappeared when Victor Hugo uttered his oration. The song of the Jingo was still heard in the land, but the uprising of the moral sentiment was sufficient to check Lord Baconsfield, if indeed the whole thing was not a theatrical stroke. It ended with the great London ballet Aphrodite, in which Cyprus was the scene, Baconsfield and the Queen of Cyprus the hero and heroine. End of chapter 41 Part 2